All right, turn to Song of Solomon. This is going to be fun. I've been wanting to preach through this book for a really long time. And I think we've got some really amazing things that we can learn from this. Um, this is a book that a lot of people in the church are afraid to teach or afraid to go through because they're worried that it might get awkward or uncomfortable because there's some stuff in here that we're not usually comfortable talking about as the church. We're not always comfortable reading about. There are a bunch of there are a bunch of things, there are a bunch of themes in the book of Song of Solomon that a lot of, I mean, I'm thinking through our polite southern culture. Like, you just, we, we just don't, we don't always feel super awesome about the idea of portraying confidence, particularly when talking about, like, sexuality. But that's not true of the Bible. The Bible is very confident. Um... The world sometimes has a picture of the church and believers as being boring or stuffy or shy. And that can be true, but it's not supposed to be that way. Um, that's not the way the people of God and the Bible act, or at least they shouldn't. And that's hopefully what we're going to see as we kind of get into this book here. <clears throat> we're going to see a king and his, his love that are anything but shy. So, yes, this is a book about romance, and this is a book about relationships, and we're going to talk about those things. But even more so, this is a book about a love of a king. And it's a book about freedom. And when I say freedom, I don't mean like this idea of, I can do whatever I want to do, or I can make my own decisions, or I can be who I want to be, or I can pick myself up and make myself whatever I want to be. Um, it's a picture of freedom of, of people who, who have no shame because they have been, been freed from the bondage of the shame of their past or whatever it is, the sin that's in their life. Caleb read this verse last week. It was Romans 8.21. Um, and I've got it up here on the screen. It says that, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So I don't want us going into this series thinking it's about, it's just about relationships between a husband and a wife or anything like that because we're not all in the same situation in the relationships that we're in. Yes, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to make references to that, and I'm going to give, hopefully, some practical teaching on things that we can apply to our marriages or our dating relationships or our singleness. Hopefully, all of those things are going to be things that we can learn more about in this series, but, but more than anything, I want us to know what it looks like to be the children of God who are set free to worship God as He deserves what it means to be the bride of Christ and to worship Jesus without fear or shame. And that's where the title of the series comes from. I'm going to put it up. I'm calling it Dance Naked. And then there's a little subtitle, Liberated Worship According to Song of Solomon. Now, before you think I'm just trying to be like 
like rude with the title or crass or whatever. I really do think that there is some practical teaching in this book that's going to give that title a whole lot of meaning to us. It's going to be something that hopefully will resonate in us and hopefully something that will shape the way that we as CRC, we as a church, worship Jesus together. So let's go ahead and get going. You've already got it up here. Song of Solomon 1.1. It just simply says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So the opening verse is the only verse that's not part of the poetry of the rest of this book. Um, And it establishes one of the primary characters. This is a book of poetry by Solomon. And I say that because I I I have to make sure I make that clear because there are a lot of people who aren't sure how we're supposed to read and interpret and then teach Song of Solomon. There are some people who say, this is just a book about a king. Maybe it was Solomon. Maybe it's kind of making reference to a king like Solomon. I think this is, and and then there, I think there's a couple of ways that are more reasonable to teach this. I think Solomon wrote this. And and we just finished reading uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, you know, a couple weeks back on Sunday nights. We're about to get into 1 Kings, and we're going to learn a lot more about Solomon. And if you know anything about Solomon, you're sitting here thinking, is Solomon the guy that I really should be taking marriage advice from? Like, didn't he end up with hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines and all of these things? And we're going to, and we're going to read a book about, about relationships being taught by Solomon. Well, there's a couple of ways that people teach Song of Solomon. And I'll, I'll give you both of them. I think both of these can work. And then I'll tell you which one I'm going to go with as I'm teaching. Uh, some people think this is a book about Solomon who's reached the end of his life. And again, Solomon, super wise. God gave him, God made him the wisest person on earth. And this is a, a book about Solomon who's, who's made all of these dumb decisions throughout his life. And now he's looking back and saying, man, if I'd done it differently, this is what an ideal marriage, this is what an ideal relationship would have been like. And he's kind of writing this poetry out as, this is the ideal, coming from a place of repentance in his heart. But I honestly think that this is a a book of poetry that Solomon wrote about a very real girl that he loved a whole lot and he spent a lot of time with, as we're going to see. And I think that, that along the way, he started making some dumb decisions and he ended up married to lots of different people and he did not remain faithful to that girl. And that's why later on in life he can write in Proverbs 5.18, let your fountains be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. I think, I think this is a book about Solomon who, who, we're getting a picture of where he was when he was when he was the closest to God, when he was living rightly, when he was doing the things that he was supposed to do. And we're going to see a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be in that kind of a relationship. So I do think Solomon does look back on this and regrets the, the awful decisions that he made along the way. Because if you go read through First and Second Kings, when God promised to David that there would always be fighting in his family for the rest of their lives... It didn't stop when David died, when Solomon took... It, it, David's kids were messed up, and Solomon made some awful decisions. But I think what we're going to see here is a book of poetry from the wisest person who ever walked the face of the earth short of Jesus, talking about what, what his ideal relationship looked like. 
No matter how you want to read it, I think we have to read this as a beautiful love story, whether it's he's writing it present tense or he's looking back on his life. I think we have to look at it for what it is, and it is practical teaching. We can't just look at it and say, this is only allegory. This is only metaphor. Because then I think we're missing a whole lot of the valuable teaching that we can get out of this book. So, let's go ahead and continue on. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 2. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant, Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. So as we're going to continue to see, uh, the girl in this story, and she doesn't really get a name. Uh, Later on in the book, they call her Shulamite, which makes us think that maybe she was a girl from a farming community kind of outside of Jerusalem. Um, and, and we'll get some more evidence to that she would come from a farming community here in just a second. Um, but we don't know a whole lot about her other than she's the confident one who speaks first in almost every instance in this book, and she's the one who talks the most. So it kind of flips the page on what people assume about, about the church that we... That were, that were male-centric and only focused on, you know, putting men only in position of power and all of these things. But, but we've, got a, we've got a clear example here of a woman who is strong and confident and she's going to lead in the conversation that they're going to have throughout this whole book. So she speaks first. She speaks most. She's the one who has been freed by her king. And we're going to talk about this today. To be the one who is the aggressor in the relationship. She loves her man. Not only is she attracted to him, she respects him. Right? Because she says a couple of things here. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She's into him. She digs him. She's attracted to him. That's okay. He smells good. Guys, (laughs) practical advice number one. He smells good. He's taken a bath. He's put on something that actually smells nice. He's not walking around reeking of B.O. Good. And he has a positive, he has the respect of the people around him. It's not just that she's liking him. It's not just that she's into him. The friends that she has around her, and they're going to kind of echo things that she's saying throughout our reading of this book. Her friends around her are coming around and they're saying, yeah, we like him too. You're right to like this guy. He's awesome. He garners the respect of the people around you. For those of you who are still waiting on a spouse, be aware of how respectable they are. And listen to the advice of the people that are around you. Because it's, it's not just, oh, he's awesome or she's awesome. I love him. I got to be with him. I don't care what anybody else says. You've probably got like, like love blinders on. Right? You got you to be able to take in the advice of the people around you. And what we see is this is a respectable guy. This is a guy that they are not afraid to say, yeah, you should like this guy. Go after it. He's awesome. We're all for it. So if you're single, be thinking about the way that people perceive you. Not because the way people perceive you defines who you are, but because you should be living a life that is respectable by the people who are going to be around you and around the people that you might one day be married to. 
Let's go ahead and read on. Verse 5. She starts talking again. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Keter, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? What does all this mean? What we're learning is that early on in their relationship, she's not as confident as she's going to be. The first thing she says is, I don't look like all those other girls that Solomon could be dating. Culturally speaking, to be super tan, which is exactly what she's saying, was not the desired look. Because if you were tan, that meant that you were probably less affluent, you were out in the fields having to work all the time, and the sun gazed on you. If you were rich, you stayed inside your house. The sun never saw you. You stayed, you stayed really light. But what she's saying is, I don't look like what you're supposed to want. And she's telling her friends, I'm ashamed of the way that I look. I don't want you guys to look at me. I'm embarrassed. She has kind of an atypical standard of beauty for what somebody would be looking for in their culture. And I kind of sum that up as, She's got a little bit of baggage going into her relationship, physically speaking, right? She's ashamed of some of the things about her body that she doesn't think that he's going to like. And she's ashamed for her friends to see her that way because this isn't what, this isn't what the girls in, in the Jerusalem magazines look like. So, so I don't know that he's going to want to see me that way. But here's why. It's, be, it's, because, it's because my brother's forced me to go work in the vineyards. My brothers were mean to me. They made me go do all these things. And, and I had to go care for all of these vineyards and I had to work super hard to the point that I haven't been able to take care of my own vineyard. And when she says that, what she's saying is, I haven't been able to take care of my own physical appearance. I've been so busy working. Right? There's going to be a lot of gardening examples, lots of gardening metaphors throughout this book. And often they're going to be talking about different ways that they're describing either the way they are or the way that their relationship is based on, based on all these sort of agricultural metaphors. They were an agricultural society. So what she's saying is, I haven't been able to take care of myself. I haven't been able to get my hair done. I haven't been able to to clean up, put on makeup, whatever it is that she thinks it is that the king is looking for. She's ashamed. She loves him. She wants to be with him. But she's got this, this physical baggage in that she thinks she doesn't look the way that he would want. And she has this family baggage in that her brothers have been kind of harsh with her and they've made her work and they've, they've, they've made her neglect taking care of herself. Going into relationships, there's all sorts of things that we could have that could be baggage. Maybe it's previous relationships. Maybe it is some sort of brokenness within our families, divorced parents or unsafe family members. Maybe it's the person that, that, we, that we love and we're pursuing for marriage. Maybe they have a different family makeup than we're used to. Maybe you're an only child and maybe you're marrying somebody or you're, or you're interested in marrying somebody who's from a huge family. I promise that makes for some interesting discussions when they start coming over to your house and trying to have dinner and they can't get a word in because your family talks so fast, speaking for a friend. 
Maybe, maybe they're coming in with some sort of baggage that's like the result of sin. Maybe they have some sort of addictive sin in their life. Maybe they have a problem with drinking or pornography or spending money. All of these things are things that can be brought into a relationship that are going to affect them. Maybe they have some sort of, like, like, like our girl here, maybe they have some sort of history of abuse. Not saying that her, brothers, that her brothers hurt her or anything, but they treated her poorly. She'd not been treated with respect and honored the way that a brother ought to treat his sister. So she's coming into this relationship with all sorts of insecurity. She's not confident about how she looks or, or the way her family is. She's embarrassed about her upbringing. She's embarrassed about a lot of things. And, and, and even more so, she feels a little bit alone, right? She's insecure about the way she looks, and she's insecure because he's not there with her, right? Verse 7, she said, tell me, you whom my soul loves, where are you past your life? Where are you? That's what she's saying. I want to be with you. I'm insecure because I'm alone and I need to know where you are. She's not yet an aggressive lover. She is insecure and alone. But the king's going to respond, and here's what he says in verse 8. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with strings of jewels. So the king's first words, the first thing that we hear from the king here, are going to address both of her two major concerns. The first thing he says is she's beautiful. He likes the way she looks. He doesn't care that it's not what the typical standard of beauty is. Right? It, it doesn't matter that she doesn't look like what culture says she's supposed to look like. She doesn't look like the girls in the Jerusalem magazines. He says, it's okay. I like the way you look. You are the most beautiful of all the women. And he says, if you don't know where I am, he doesn't just tell her, okay, so you're going to go down to this field, you're going to take a left and you'll find me. But he's a little bit playful with it. Right? They're not married at this point. They're still kind of in that dating, dating realm. And he's being a little bit playful with her. He's like, if you don't know... Maybe follow these tracks. Come try to find me. I'll give you a couple of clues. Right? He's being fun. He loves her and he wants to be with her, but he also doesn't want to just, he wants to do something that's a little bit, a little bit playful when he's saying, come see me. Let's go have a date. Come out here. Come sit down. We'll have lunch. We'll hang out. Then he calls her a horse. which seems a little weird, right? But I promise, if you knew what he was saying, it's not nearly as weird as he's saying. He's saying, think through, think through the Egyptian army, right? Big, powerful, strong. Pharaoh's going to have the best of the best. He's saying, he's saying, if you were a horse, you would be the best, most beautiful horse who stands out among the rest. He's saying, he's saying, you are by far the only one that I notice. He's going to say these kinds of things over and over again. I'm going to go ahead and keep reading. Verse 11. Her friends say, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. 
They're going to hold back no expense. And she says, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of the Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, as a lily among branches, brambles. So is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, his right with, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There are a bunch of things in here. The first thing I want us to see is that her, remember, what were her initial concerns? I don't, I don't feel confident about the way he's looking at me, and I feel alone. I don't feel, I feel, I feel isolated. I need to be with him. But listen to how her language has changed. She's no longer afraid. She's no longer, she's no longer insecure. He said, I love you. I want to be with you. Come see me. Let's hang out. Let's get together. You are so, you are exactly like what it is that I'm looking for. Whether you are what, what, the, what, what the culture says you're supposed to look like, you're exactly what I'm looking for. Her language is a little bit more assertive, a little bit more obvious as to what it is that she's thinking about. Right? She talks about, while the king was on his couch, she says, my nard gave forth this fragrance. What is nard? That's not a word that we typically use. What that's talking about is, that is an expensive perfume that would probably smell good to one's mate. Right? And she's not subtle about where it is. Right? She's saying, I'm holding you, my, my, my beloved, right? That's one of her pet names for him. My beloved, I'm holding close to my heart. Like he's on my heart. I love him. I want him close to me. And she's thinking of, after they're married, where she wants him to be. She wants to be close to him. She wants, to be, she wants him to be right there with her. She's saying that, that he reminds her of the Engedi, which is like an oasis in the middle of the desert. She's saying like, I feel lost and I'm out in a desert. It's dry and barren, but then I have you and I feel like I am refreshed. I have everything that I need. I have something to eat. I have something to drink. I'm not, I'm not wandering aimlessly in a desert when I'm with you. Her man is the one safe thing in a bare and dangerous world. The one place where she feels like she is perfectly safe. And they kind of have this playful back and forth where she's saying how much she, she digs him and he's saying how much he digs her. And they're building this language of intimacy 
in the way that they talk to one another. Again, they're not married and they're not doing anything inappropriate. Right? She says, I want to be close to you. She goes, she goes on to say, I'm sick with love. Like she so wants to be with him and that's okay because they're not doing anything they're not supposed to do outside of marriage. But they're saying, I feel like I want to do those things. And that's all right, because God has put this, this desire in him, and because she now feels confident that he loves her exactly as she is, she feels comfortable enough to say to him exactly how she feels. I want to be with you. I want to be close to you. You make me feel safe. She talks about the details of their house. She uses that as an example. She talks about, about the couch and the furniture and, and the rafters over her head being strong and safe. She feels like he's provided a safe place for her to be, a place where she knows that she's going to be able to confidently go and feel like he's taking care of me. But even more so, verse 4, he brought me into the banqueting house, a public place, and his banner over me was love. He's not ashamed to let the world know exactly how he feels about her. There's no, all right, we're going to date, but kind of keep it, keep it quiet. No, he's like, I want the world to know how much I love this girl. I want her to know that I want everyone to know how much I love her. She doesn't have to wonder, does he really mean it? Or why is he being so secretive about this? No, he's like, I want you to know. He's, 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 in a sense, preaching the gospel of his love for this girl. He wants to make sure anybody who sees him knows just how he feels about her. He talks about how beautiful she is. He, he, he calls her eyes like doves. And I think what he's trying to say is he gets lost in her eyes like he looks in her eyes and he's just transfixed. It, it reminded me of, remember at the end of the Jungle Book when Mowgli finally gets to the man village and he sees the girl who's out there scooping up the water and he hasn't really looked at her yet and then she looks back at him and he like locks on her eyes and all of a sudden he just kind of gets swimmy headed <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to go with her now. That's kind of the picture I get. He's like, I see your eyes and I'm just transfixed. She describes herself as, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. She's saying, I feel beautiful now. Listen to how her language has changed because, because of his confidence and love for her and the way that he's, he's telling her, you're exactly what I want. And he says, he says, you're not just a nice looking flower. He says, to me, when I see you, you're the only flower in a world full of briars, right? I see nothing else except you. And then she says back to him, to me, you're an apple tree that's in the middle of a forest. Like, like you're the one that stands out. You're the only one that I see. And they have this dialogue back and forth where they're just telling each other how much they, they, they like each other, how much they love each other, how much they want to be with each other. And I keep making reference to this idea of she doesn't look like 
maybe what culture says she should look like. Uh, practical, practical application number two. Um, and I'm stealing this one from when Mark Driscoll preached through the series. People, we don't have a standard of beauty. We have a spouse. You don't say, well, this, this person's not up to this standard that I've placed in my mind. We aren't looking for a standard of beauty. We're looking for the person that God has put in our life. And the spouse that he gives you is the standard of beauty that you look for. So if you, if you have a spouse who's, who's tall, you really like tall people. If you have a spouse who's short, you really like short people. If you have a spouse who sunburns, you really like people whose name is ironically wrong for what their skin tone is like. You don't say, well, I'm looking for somebody with this look, this height, this build. Because she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have met with the cultural standard that the world was trying to tell Solomon, hey, this is probably what you should be looking for. And he's the king. He could probably find whoever he wants, but no, his heart is after this girl. And he says, to me, you are the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And because of the way that he's confidently describing these things, we see her starting to open up and say, yes, I want to be with you. I feel, I feel beautiful. I feel like I feel safe when I'm with you. And she's saying all of this, not just to him, but to all of her friends as well, right? Like, my guy's awesome. He makes me feel safe. He makes me feel good. I really want to be with him. But then she does go ahead and caution her friends. But if you're feeling this way, you still can't just do whatever you want. There's a time and a place. We're not married yet. It's not time for that place yet. It's not the time or place. She says, I, I, I remind you, even, even though you are, we are into each other, she says, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There's still a time and a place for this. Their relationship is still pure. It's not sinful to be attracted to one another. But while they're not yet married, she knows that it has to just stop at attraction and desire. And she reminds all of her friends of this as well. So, what can we learn? Because yes, this is a beautiful love story that we're seeing played out. But we're seeing a love story played out between a king and his bride. And the Bible describes the church as the bride to a king who would follow this king. A king who was also a shepherd, who pastured a flock. And just like she longed to be with her king, we should be a people who are passionately desiring to be with ours. Listen to the kind of language she's using. I want to be with him. I need to be with him. His love is better than wine. I'm sick with love. These things that she's saying are not subtle. They're not, they're not kind of held back. They're not reserved. They're bold. They're confident. She wants to be with him. No matter what your baggage may be, no matter what sin or shame might be in your past, Jesus sought you out despite all of it. 
He singled you out from the masses. If you are in Christ, if you are saved, you can be confident that he loves you the way that this king loves his his girl. Even Even if you've got this wild and crazy past, maybe you've got a bunch of sin, maybe you've been sinned against and you're like, there's no way that Jesus wants to be around me, I'm probably gross to him. Jesus singled you out just like you are. And just like she had a shepherd king, we have a shepherd king who provides us protection, provision, security. We don't have to be afraid of what might face us in the world because we have a king who is powerful and mighty enough to protect us. He can take away our sin. He can take away our shame. He can take away, he can take away all of the pain. He can, we can feel safe being with him. And as we can see, as dramatically as her language changed, right? Because at the beginning she's like, man, I, I don't know that he, really, he would really be into me. I don't look this way. And... Well, I've got this in my past, and my family's kind of messed up, and I've got all these things that have happened to me and these things that I've done, and I don't, I don't feel like I'm really worth bothering for. And then listen to what she's talking like by the end. I want you. I love you. I need to be with you. I feel, I feel, I feel confident that I can talk this way to you because you've set me free to feel this way. And that's what, I'm, that's what, that's what we're talking about through this whole book. That's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, I, I read the verse from, from Romans earlier where, where we're set, we understand being what, what it feels like to be free as the children of God and what that's going to look like. I want us to read this book as a book about practical relationship advice, sure, but I want us to understand what it looks like to be freed to worship Jesus the way that he deserves. I want us to passionately love Jesus the way that she passionately loves her king. I want our worship to be influenced by the confidence that we are given because we know that Jesus loves us and that he takes away all of the stuff from the past so we no longer have to be ashamed about who we are or what we look like or what we've done with our lives. We don't have to be afraid. We can be, we can be like her. We can be confident. We can... We can aggressively say the things that we feel, and I want us to feel those things. And we're able to feel those things because because our king has already made us exactly who we are, and he loves us exactly as he has made us. And he he has made us his children. He's made this church. He's made this church his bride, and he loves his bride. And I want us to be a people who so passionately desire to worship Jesus with everything in us because we've been set free to do so. So let's pray.